Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. Today I have with me John Rappaport. John, welcome. Good to be here. Thanks. John was an investigative reporter for 30 years. He now writes independently at nomorefakenews.com. His voice has been one that's significantly influenced my own thinking over the past year, year and a half. And I hope that as we spend some time with him, you'll find uh, some thinking of value here. John, what's your own educational background? Well, I was educated in public schools in New York. And then I went to a small Ivy League college, uh, Amherst, in the 1950s, second half of the 1950s, after which I vowed that I would never be found inside a classroom again. <laughs> How and, come? Uh, well, I guess a number of different reasons. I began to realize, even in high school, that the kind of education that we were getting was severely limited. And one of the, uh, the biggest stimulus, I would say, was in a history class in high school, the teacher was sick and we had a substitute for a couple of weeks. And I don't know where this guy came from, but he just jumped right in and said, have you ever heard of something called logical fallacies? And everybody kind of blinked and looked around. He said, well, I'm going to show you what they are because you've got to learn to think logically. And these will be items that you can look for in anything that you read or study that show you how you're receiving incorrect or invalid information. And so I'll run these down for you. And I remember he started with the idea of vague generality. That was one of the logical fallacies, which, by the way, uh, 15 or 20 of these used to be taught in public schools a long time ago, but now, and certainly in high schools, you would be very hard-pressed to find any to teach them. And so he showed us you know, circular reasoning, vague generality, the straw man, strategy, uh, invalid inference, on and on and on. And we got a real education in two weeks that he was there, and it stuck with me. It made me think to myself, well, maybe there's a huge amount of information that I'm taking in here that is actually completely skewed. Uh, it was like finding buried treasure. And so in my college education, although I had very good training in logic, majored in philosophy, um, in my other courses, I found that there was a profound lack of curiosity about the possibility that what we were learning was incomplete and invalid in certain respects. And when I would bring this sort of thing up in other classes, the teacher would usually ignore it or pass it off as something of minor interest. But privately, over those four years in college, there was something building up inside me which was a very deep skepticism about almost everything that I was learning. And I wasn't finding an outlet where I felt I could get some uh, 
understanding about this. I saw many other possibilities for a way that people could be educated, and I was, you know, kind of a prisoner of one strategy. And it just rubbed me the wrong way. And when I was done, I said, okay, so I did, I did that. I got through it. Now it's time for me to think on my own and figure out things. I'm probably not the only person who um, has been sort of immersed in traditional thinking about education and then um, kind of like you sort of discovered that there might be another agenda or a different way of looking at it. How much of this do you think is intentional and how much has been practices that are beneficial to certain groups and so they get perpetuated? Well, the latter is certainly the case, because in any sort of organization or bureaucracy, the people who hold significant positions want to protect those positions, and they do it by following orders, engaging in conventional thinking, and so that's certainly the case. But as far as the intention beyond that goes, I don't think there's any question that it's there. You can look back at the uh, history of the Carnegie Foundation, for example, and see that it concluded very early on, the beginning of the 20th century, that aside from war, education was the major way to influence and control the population. And going from there, there's no question that teaching logic as it should be taught and critical thinking would be counterproductive to the goal of controlling populations because what logic does when it's taught well is it wakens minds to the point where they become independent, where they become able to analyze data, look at formal arguments, and pick holes in them. All of the things that would make citizens immune to propaganda, to lies, and to the machinations of uh, the base of government and uh, major corporations. So there's no question in my mind that the gradual disappearance of logic as a discipline in schools was and is intentional. You can find it in colleges, but really logic needs to be taught, I would say, first at the level of about eighth or ninth grade. That's when students can begin to appreciate it. And if it were taught successfully throughout the entire public school system and in private schools, uh, we would be looking at a very different country right now. I'm interested in the ways in which it feels to me that most students leave school believing that they're not good learners rather than sort of proactively ready to jump into independent and interesting things. But I don't think that's the intention of the teachers. Right? So so what's happening to those who are participating in the system? Do they do they not see that? Well, actually, I think that many teachers don't see it uh, when it comes to logic, for example, because they themselves were never taught the subject. 
when they went to school. So they don't see it as a glaring omission. They are victims just like their students are. So in that sense, it's unintentional. But, you know, you're in an organization. Teachers are inside an organization. They know what they're supposed to do, and they know what they're not supposed to do. Just like, you know, a government employee. <laughs> you know, just like somebody inside the CIA, just like somebody in the military, just like somebody who works for Monsanto, just like mainstream reporters. They all, if they're going to survive, very quickly get a sense of what's okay and what's not okay. And unfortunately, most people go along. And that applies to teachers as well. Also, I would say that the current crop of teachers for the last 30, 40 years have received themselves a very poor education. And they have been trained to do things, you know, that we don't even talk about anymore, that were at one point kind of a scandal like grading on a curve. You never hear people talk about that anymore, but it goes on all the time. What does that mean? It means that the teacher adjusts the grades of the students to their relative performance, their performance relative to each other, as opposed to the absolute standard of did you learn the material or not. So going along with that practice uh, is very destructive. And then you look at the textbooks. They're too complicated. They're not uh, direct enough. They don't have enough exercises and drills to ensure that the student who's just learning a new concept, let's say in arithmetic or algebra or grammar, really gets the concept before moving on to the next one. Well, ultimately, the teacher is responsible for all of that. But unfortunately, most teachers don't operate at that level of responsibility. They give in. Um, I've told this story before, but back in the 1970s, when I was a tutor at uh, Santa Monica College in California, I happened to pass by a little a storefront in Santa Monica called Educulture, and I went in. And uh, the owner of the company at that time was kind of a pioneer in little remedial booklets. There were no computer systems then, but these booklets functioned in a way like computers might, computer programs might. If a student was having trouble in a certain course in English, let's say, in grammar, arithmetic, so forth, the student could, with a tutor, dip into one of these booklets and catch up. That was the idea. And this company was starting to take off. It was doing quite well. And there was the promise that the people who wrote the booklets could make quite a lot of money, and I was very interested. And I said to the owner of the company, you know, I could do one of these or a whole series of these booklets on logic. And he said, really? I said, yes. I said, I know the subject pretty well, and I could take students through this. 
He said, well, that's a great idea. Why don't you just do up a sample lesson on one concept and bring it in and let me see it, which I did. And he looked it over and he said, yes, yes, yes. He said, but, you know, each time you introduce a new idea, you've got all these drills and exercises to test the student's knowledge of that idea. And I said, yeah, so? And he said, well, there are too many of these. Uh, it's just too bulky. It doesn't work. What you've got to do is narrow it all down so that if the student doesn't get an idea, you branch him off to another area where he gets a very quick little tutorial and then answers a couple of questions correctly, and then he's back on the main trunk of the of the course. I said, well, that doesn't work. He said, why not? I said, because, you know, there's only one way to learn something. An idea. You've got to have many examples, and you have to do the examples and answer them correctly. And then you should really take a quiz and do that well, too, before you move on. I said, this is the way all old traditional textbooks operated. And the teachers who taught out of them operated the same way. He said, well, that's not the way it's done anymore. And we can't do it that way. It just doesn't work. It wouldn't fit into our program. So we got into an argument, and the argument escalated to the point where, you know, we almost came to blows, and that was the end of my little budding career there. But it showed me what had happened to education. It was just completely off the rails. It was unworkable, completely unworkable. So the teachers who participate in this system, they know it, but they don't know it. You know, they convince themselves that everything is okay when it's not, just like other people do in other walks of life. And the students suffer as a result. So that's why when they leave school, they feel nervous, anxious, uncertain. They don't know what they know. They've never really been tested well or taught well in the traditional manner in which schools used to operate. And so they're at sea. They're just floundering. And that's a tragedy. So one of the first moments for me of beginning to rethink much of what I had been thinking about education came when I visited the War and Peace Museum in Cannes, France, and saw this section on propaganda. And I kind of went back and researched and read a lot about propaganda and even preceding that, the, the move from philosophy to psychology. To what degree do you feel that our changed view of how the mind works and how we influence other people is at the heart of this shift? Well, first of all, as you were just saying that, the thought that popped into my mind was you could stage a really great revolution in education if in every school there was a course in propaganda that was taught by somebody who knew what they were doing. That's number one. That would be fantastic. Propaganda, 101. You could do it in high school, in the college, with increasing levels of sophistication. So that, you know, if a student did not learn anything else, after his 12 or 16 years of education, he would emerge knowing what propaganda was, being able to recognize it, take it apart, put it back together again. That would be a monumental achievement 
Second, I think that the fields of psychology, social psychology, sociology, they have all been utilized as corrupted forms of fake science to influence the way education is done. For example, the idea in the social sciences that we really need to focus on groups, societies, cultures, tribes, clans, organizations, and not the individual. That is a extremely corrosive concept, and that has been intentionally floated. I mean, it's itself a form of propaganda, which we could get into. But the uh, upshot of that is that you see a whole new pseudo-discipline arising in schools, in classrooms, in educational journals called cooperative learning. I was unaware of this until a couple of years ago when I started looking into it. Okay, class, we now have a project, and here is the project, and you're going to do this in three different groups, and each person, each group will be assigned a specific task, and you will help each other and so forth and so on, and come up with some good end product, blah, 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 blah. And it's made to sound very uplifting and also effective education. But in practice, it has to be a very deteriorating form of learning because it eliminates the idea that the individual in the classroom, the individual student, is responsible and able and capable of learning on his or her own. So much emphasis now on the group, on social interactions within the group, on cooperative learning projects and some students helping other students. And it's so complex that in practice it will devolve into a sort of a mishmash where most of the students don't learn what they're supposed to learn. But it will all be shielded and uh, recycled as a great learning experience for the group and everyone really got something out of it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this is starting to take over in schools. And this is a direct result of social psychology, which emphasizes the group at the expense of the individual. So along with that, I would say that the philosophy, the modern philosophy of materialism, which is expressed in not only psychology, but also the field of medicine, the field of physics, and other sciences, basically holds that the human consciousness, if it means anything at all, it simply means brain activity, tick-tock-tock, chemicals operating in the brain, particles moving around, neurons, this, that, and the other thing. And once you accept this absurd notion of what life and consciousness are, and I've spent a great deal of time refuting that view 
once you accept it, then you have a very degraded understanding of what the individual is. And therefore, in schools, in teaching, in education, in classes, in testing, in all of that, the notion again that the individual is primary and the goal of education is to equip the individual to have an independent, capable mind, that goes by the, you know, by the wayside. That's gone. That's no longer an announced primary goal of education. That's gone. And so that tremendously contributes modern psychology in all of its forms to the destruction of education. It's interesting to me, as I hear you say that I find myself very much in agreement, but I also hear or, or think about the ways in which we are, in fact, influenced by groups and the ways in which propaganda does work. So is it just that by focusing solely on the aspects of our behavior that's influenced by groups and not focusing on the individual that we have gotten out of balance? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because what corrects the imbalance of being so heavily influenced by groups? It's the reassertion of the individual. It's a, it's a wake-up call. It's like saying to somebody, hey, you're you. Don't you get it? You're swimming in this sea of group this and group that and group think this and that group is important and this group is carrying forward a great ideal to do this and that and the other. You know, you're swimming in all of that stuff. Wake up. You're you. And by being you, you have power. You have ability, you have the capacity to think, to explore, to research, to investigate, to come to your own independent conclusions, to imagine new futures that you can create yourself, all of that. That's the, that's the basic antidote to group consciousness. And if you don't employ that antidote and you try to wake people up through other means, it's inevitably going to fail because that's the problem. <laughs> the problem is that the individual has a deteriorated view and conception of himself because he seems to be tied together in so many groups. And when you mention propaganda, that again comes into play because Propaganda is all about the group. I mean, Edward Bernays, uh, one of the fathers of modern public relations and propaganda, who was a nephew of Sigmund Freud, once said something to the effect, you can influence a million people quite easily, but you might find it very difficult to influence one person. So he was basically giving you the keys to his kingdom which was all propaganda is aimed at the group, on behalf of the group, to the group, and therefore 
in order for it to succeed, the individual has to conceive of himself as a member of a group. If he doesn't, then he can look at all of this and say, they must be talking to somebody else. They're not talking to me. I'm not a group. So that's the antidote. And it works. But if you don't use it, nothing else does. I would describe your writing, John, as having elements of spirituality in it. You you can tell me whether or not you agree. But it feels as though, in many cases, that uh, organized religions have been some of the most active promoters of the worth and value of the individual. Who actually is prepared to sort of fight for this view of the value of the individual? That's a great question because the answer is up for grabs. You know, that's, that is the war that we're in. You know, who is going to stand up for the individual as opposed to the group and groupthink and the collective and collectivism? Who is? And yes, to me, the individual is not merely a psychological construct or some sort of uh, political assertion, which it is, but it's more than that. It is spiritual in the sense that the individual is not just a physical form, is not just a brain, is not just a leg, an arm, the secretion of a particular hormone or neurotransmitter at a certain moment. Those are all the views of philosophical materialists who say that everything that we think we know is a fraud because all that's really happening is the motion of particles in space through time. And those particles make up rocks and trees and brains and hearts and what have you, everything. It's all that sort of process that we're involved in. And therefore, the idea of the individual as a distinct entity that is not just material particles moving around in space is absurd. That's what they would say, and they do say that. Well, they have defined pretty much their side of the battle. My side of the battle is to say that that not only makes no sense, but it is uh, ultimately destructive of the freedom, independence, power, imagination of the individual. The individual is inhabiting a physical form, but is not that physical form. Now, some religions kind of, you know, agree with that idea, but they immediately twist it and turn it and use it to promote a specific ideology, a specific a legend, a specific doctrine, and a kind of exclusivity, meaning if you want to 
be saved if you want to escape some horrible fate, you have to go through us. And in one way or another, that's what they're all saying. That, to me, is a total corruption of what any spiritual, real spiritual leader historically ever stood for. So, again, you've got the degradation of the individual through organized religion. You know, I mean, it seems completely obvious to me, and many people don't see it that way. I understand that, but I don't think there's any question about it. If it's okay with you, I'd like to kind of go to a macro level, because um, it feels as though this isn't just about education, right? It's about a variety of arenas in which institutional narratives um, don't support or promote the individual's benefit or the individual's thinking. And the questioning of institutional narratives, and I'm interested in kind of other threads that you see tying into this, but the questioning of, of institutional narratives is often called conspiracy thinking with a pejorative content con, um, connotation. How do you react to that when somebody says, you're, you're seeing too much here? Well, I react in many cases with facts. <laughs> Call me crazy, but that's what I do. And as an example, I've spent many, many, many hours writing about what I call the medical cartel. And that is the modern medical system of diagnosis and treatment of the global population. Because we're talking about an institution here that has <clears throat> spread all over the world in the last hundred years or so. And so... I say, okay, here's the narrative that we hear. This is the greatest thing, <laughs> excuse me, that human beings have ever invented, discovered. It's uh, revolutionized life on the planet for the good. And I say, well, in certain respects, uh, I could agree with that. If you're lying in the road after an automobile accident, and you want someone to put you together, are you looking for an herbalist or are you looking for an ambulance that's going to take you to the ER? But if you're looking at the overall effect of modern medicine and its supposed narrative of we are the greatest, I you know, begin to illustrate with studies the actual facts. July 26, 2000, Journal of the American Medical Association, Dr. Barbara Starfield, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, the U.S. medical system kills 225,000 people every year in the U.S. like clockwork, which would mean 2.25 million killings per decade. So how do we square that with the narrative? 
am I a conspiracy thinker to cite that study? No. What is actually a conspiracy is the failure of major media to cover that story and to hammer away at it as one of the major stories of our time, to bring it all out into the open, to reveal who the criminals are, and to demand prosecution and prison sentences for them. There's the conspiracy, a conspiracy of silence. And, you know, I could easily explain why that is and how that is, but that's the fact. So when it comes to institutional narratives, what I try to do is say, here is what we are told. This is the story. This is the fairy tale. This is the legend about this institution, whatever it is modern medicine, the CIA, the Federal Reserve. This is what we're all told. This is the conventional wisdom. Now, is that the truth? Or is it a lie? If I'm a conspiracy theorist for pointing out the lies, so be it. Use any label you want to. But what you should really be looking at is since the naked truth about these institutions is horrific when it comes to light, where is the true conspiracy then? It's always a strategy for a guilty party to point a finger at the person who has revealed their guilt and say, well, they're crazy, they don't know what they're talking about, they're in the fringe. Many uh, experts would disagree with this, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, that would be their approach, to discredit in every way possible someone who points out the truth, or to take the most egregious kind of uh, wild thinking and make that the representative of an actual investigator who's looking for the truth, which is another strategy of theirs to take, you know, the weirdest, strangest version of, you know, for example, well, here's a guy who lives in his garage in Mississippi who says that the U.S. educational system has been intentionally destroyed by aliens from Jupiter. You know, this is where you, this is the kind of thinking that criticizes the U.S. educational system. You know, they'll do something crazy like that. So that's my approach to these institutions and their narratives. To take it one step further, I think it can be shown that virtually all major institutions of government, mega corporations and so forth, have a significant collectivist model behind them. They all preach greatest good for the greatest number. And they use that to forward an agenda that at the highest levels is really a collectivist planet overseen by a management system of very, very few people. 
that this is perhaps their biggest secret, of which, you know, far fewer than 1% of the people involved are even aware. People work at a job, they're told what to do, and they do it. John, it feels like there are uh, counter-narratives evolving in a wide variety of what might be sort of traditional institutions, medicine, finance, governance, education. Is this the result of the Internet providing for alternative forms of communication? Is that too simplistic an answer as to why we're seeing so much questioning? I would certainly say that the Internet has played a, a huge part. But I also think that at the time that the Internet began to flower, there was already a burgeoning kind of underground movement all over the world of people who were aware, becoming aware, that all of these narratives were false. I can remember a time... <laughs> as late as 1995, when I was yet not on the Internet, and I was giving talks here and there, and there was a small group of people who would, uh, you know, their business, you could say, was recording people giving talks and selling audio cassettes of those talks, and they would bring tape copiers to the lecture, and they would record the lecture and immediately start copying the masters, and people who were there could buy the tapes and so forth. And this group called She Who Remembers recorded a number of my talks, and these audio cassettes got out there far and wide. I mean, I would occasionally hear from somebody in some remote place who said, well, I heard your lecture that you gave, you know, in Los Angeles about this, that, and the other thing. So it was there, but it wasn't connected, certainly not in the way it is now. The Internet provided the occasion and the technology in order to do it. And then suddenly all these people emerged who had counter-narratives and expressing and articulating what those counter-narratives were other people who were now on the Internet caught on, and they began to see as well there's something very, very wrong about reality as it is being created for us. That's the way I would put it. I keep going back to Plato, both for the kind of explicit... Um, use of the school system for managing society in the Republic, and also because of the allegory of the cave. This doesn't feel like it's a new story, right? Is this, is this a common story of humankind in terms of groups of people wanting and accumulating power and control over other groups of people? Yes, I think it's always been the case. The thing about Plato, to me, is that he started off with, in his 
dialogues with, of course, his main character, Socrates, who would challenge citizens in conversation to show that their thinking was superficial and shallow. And this was really the beginning in the West of the discipline of logic, which was eventually codified for the first time by Plato's star student, Aristotle. But Plato kept driving and driving toward the idea that basic concepts like justice, piety, all of the notions that people would say are important in holding a society together, that these concepts somehow came from another dimension, as strange as that may seem. And this was called his theory of pure forms, that everything we see in the visible world has its perfection in some other dimension. And that when now and then a person slips out of the dark cave where they are only seeing, so to speak, shadows of the real thing and emerge into the sunlight, they will see this other dimension of pure ideas or forms and understand what reality is all about. As an abstract uh, idea or an abstract metaphor or an abstract story, it's very compelling. But then, when Plato decided to flesh all of this out in writing the Republic and how a society had to be organized to make it take advantage of all of this that he was talking about, you know, he painted himself into a corner and revealed his true approach to human civilization and life by saying, well, only those who have the exceptional knowledge of pure reality should rule everybody else. Boom. Fascism. All of a sudden, you know, you know, you're going along with Socrates, who seems to be urging free and open discourse and reasonable understanding and logic and independent thought and all, and all of a sudden, here's where you arrive. Now, I studied this in college, and uh, unfortunately, I wasn't really sharp enough to, to see all this at the time, nor was it really discussed in the classes in which I studied it, and it should have been, because right there, at the beginning, you might say, of Western philosophy, was the biggest problem that would eventually show up in societies and civilizations everywhere, the idea of an elite who know more, who therefore should rule, who are not subject to the uh, whims and impulses of the common herd, and they are the wise ones, and they should rule everybody else. Yes, that's been happening since the dawn of time, and in a way it was codified in the Republic. And from that point on, what you saw in Western philosophy was a struggle on one side of that question or the other. And eventually, 
coming into the 18th and 19th centuries, you began to see people finally providing a basis for the idea of the individual and liberty and freedom as being fundamental to any kind of study of anything. And that persisted for a little while until the fascists and collectivists moved in again in order to defeat that whole notion. So much of your language, it feels to me, has uh, about this has echoes in the um, Bernays and Lippmann era of of managing people through propaganda, and it's hard not to see them as envisioning themselves as the those in Plato's cave who keep the fire going and are managing the puppets. Yes. Do you think there's a group in society that is actively aware that that's what they're doing intentionally? It's We don't want to believe that, but it seems like it must be true. I don't think there's any question about it. Um, I've written a great deal about globalism and the globalists, David Rockefeller and the Rockefeller dynasty, which has extraordinary resources that, you know, wherever you look, money, finance, oil, pharmaceuticals, the really big industries, big money, the invention and creation of money, organizations devoted to a globalist world like the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission, both of which were really born out of the Rockefeller family. And there are other players, of course. But I try to describe it this way. If you are a person who is bent on control of others, and you want to control as many other people as possible, then what is your uh, position going to include? It's going to include the whole planet, certainly in the 20th century. You're not going to be thinking about Arizona, you know, or or just or New Zealand. You're going to be thinking about the whole shooting match. And if on top of that you have extraordinary resources and connections and power and influence over people and have vast organizations at your beck and call, now you're really in a position to make your intentions come true. And that's what globalism is. It is a kind of philosophy, you might say, based on the ideas of the republic. The few should rule the many because the few understand how to manage an entire population, a global population. And that's where you find the people who are casting shadows on the wall of the cave and operating the puppets and so on and so forth. It is quite intentional. 
However, most of the people who are the foot soldiers for these operations, these globalist operations, have absolutely no idea that they're involved in something that big. And why would they? You know, if you're an academic researcher at a university and your field happens to be uh, sociology, what do you know? You know that the current level of thought is we're talking about the group. We're talking about eradicating the idea of the individual. We're talking about humanity as a whole. We're talking about the greatest good for the greatest number and how that can be executed within any group or society or civilization. That's basically what we're talking about. And the dynamic interplay within a group and what is effective in terms of a group uh, realizing its goals, blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. That's what you know. And if you want to follow, if you want to succeed as a, an academic and publish and teach and have the kind of comfortable life that you aspire to, you're going to follow along in that way. But where's the money coming from for, for this kind of research? Who has that money? What foundations? Who is behind those foundations? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when you begin to trace all of this upwardly, you come to the globalists, those philosopher kings or would-be philosopher kings who want to run the planet. So in order for such an operation to succeed, you don't need to have very many people who really know what's going on. As you go down through the structure toward the bottom, people know less and less and less and less. But nevertheless, they cooperate. They do what they're supposed to do to forward the, the highest goal. seems that, in part, we're built in such a way as human beings that we become consumed by the immediate circumstances around us. And so if, if someone does believe that, that they're in a better position to decide for society what should happen and create constructs for that, it's very easy to be in your little piece of the pie and just be working on those things that are in your immediate purview without questioning the larger picture. Why would you question the larger picture if, if your uh, perception is that narrow? You instinctively know that if you do, you're going to get into trouble. Immediately, you're going to get into trouble with your colleagues at work and your supervisors. I don't care whether it's a college, university, a think tank, a research institution, a corporation, you know, you're going to get in trouble. And you know, you, you don't, may not know why or how, but you know that. And I've talked to many reporters because that's the field I've been working in, among others, for the last whatever it is, 30 years or so now. And they tell me the same story. They know what stories to cover and what stories not to cover. Nobody has to tell them. 
occasionally, you know, the big shots in the boardroom upstairs are going to make a phone call to make sure a certain story is covered in a certain way or it's not covered at all. But day to day, every day, the overwhelming number of news stories are covered by the foot soldiers, the reporters, the editors, the anchors. They know what they can say and what they can't say. They understand the game, and they follow the rules. And if they don't, they get a swift education from their editor who will say, you can't cover this story. Why not? And then you hear the various reasons. Excuse me. We've covered it before. People aren't interested in it anymore. You'll never get to the bottom of it. If you try to penetrate the wall of silence about this, you're going to lose access to the important sources and other stories of yours, so it's not really worth it. Forget it. Etc. Etc. And pretty soon the reporter says, okay, I get it. I'm in this territory here. This is what I do. I cover these kinds of stories. I can do this, I can do that, and I can do this, and occasionally I can do that. But I can't do any of that over there, ever. It's conditioning. If I want my job, if I want job security of any kind, I know what I have to do. We have just a minute or two left. To what degree is becoming a creator or an artist an answer to some of these dilemmas? Well, ultimately, I think it's an answer to all of them. But by artist, I basically mean that instead of accepting reality as it is invented for you, you invent the reality you most profoundly desire whatever that is. And you will eventually find that if you do that and you keep doing it, as a spillover from what you're doing, there are going to be beneficial effects for other people. And if we had enough people living their lives this way, eventually society would become revolutionized. I'm not saying that this is the only way to change society or that groups with good intentions never win, <laughs> but I am saying that in the long, 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 long run, this is the way to really change society. Unfortunately, most people don't have a connection to their own imaginations. They once did when they were children, and then they decided that as adults that was a thing of the past, just a toy for amusement, and now I have to face the sober facts of life. And therefore, from that point on, their life becomes less inspired, less free, less powerful. So when I say artists, I really mean artists of reality. Because, after all, what we have here, and you can even see this going back to Plato's Republic, the people in control are, in a way, perverse artists in the sense that they are creating 
if you want to imagine a giant mural that stretches, you know, miles and miles long, they are saying, this is reality. This is what reality is. This is what you have to pay homage to. This is what you have to deal with. This is life. This is all it is. Here it is. That is a form of art as well. The individual can awaken to that fact and then decide, no, the reason I'm here is to invent the reality that I want, not to accept consensus in all forms. And that's why, one of the reasons why I write about the artist. I've been talking to John Rappaport. His website is nomorefakenews.com. John, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it.